Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I am back from my wanderings. I did not die in the mountains, so we can continue with the news. Michael, how have you been? I've been well, Gary, and I'm glad to hear that you have indeed survived and come back from the wilds to join us. Yes, it was the most physically demanding thing I think I've ever done, and I spent most nights in a great deal of pain. But at the end, it was probably worth it. Well, you know what? Maybe it's something that is metaphorically a a preparation for a long and happy marriage. You're getting all the, the worst of the pain out at the beginning of the whole experience. And after this, you can always look back and say, you know what? We've been through worse. We'll keep this relatively short because while I am back, it still hurts to sit or to stand or pretty much to hold any position for an extended period of time. So we will <laughs> we will run through this. Yeah, but re- metaphorically run, I'm guessing, on that basis. I know. I always knew that exercise was bad for you. Well, I did do rather a lot of walking. Up and down mountains. Up and down and up and down and up and down for day after day. And through the muck and the mud. Yeah, yeah. The rains were not pleasant. But we will we'll do this and we will we will get through it in one piece, Michael. So I see the polls are out. Pretty much a continuation of what we've seen. Fine Gael are at the lowest they've been in a Red Sea poll since the polls, uh, well, started in this round, I think in 2005, which is not good. Sinn Féin remain roughly where they were in the other polls. Their lead is incredibly solid. And into that, Michael, where we have the government polling horrendously, we have Fine Gael's think-in talking about how they can no longer try and be a party of everyone. We have a little article in the Irish Independent. Yes. That a, a secret cabinet memo warns home energy bills could treble to €6,000 a year. Now, I have, you know, historically not been on the winning side in many political arenas, Michael. But even I would have to guess that an increase of home energy bills to €6,000 a year is not going to make you more popular. I think your political instincts are on the nose there, Gary. I genuinely have got to a point now where when I talk to people about politics, I say regularly, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand it anymore. I don't understand them why they go here than there. But I'm going to say going from 2000 to 6000 in your, your, your energy bill in a year... That's going to make you less popular rather than more popular. That is a, a hill I'm willing to, well, if not die on, I'm willing to bad, catch a bad cold on. So, Michael, I might even go further and say that any political system or political party which fails to keep the lights on, probably not working. Yeah, and I know we have talked about this before, but it's just that the, the, the particular graph seems to appear very regularly across social media, which is that little graph, not really a graph, a visual or whatever you want to call it, which shows the state of readiness of various countries across Europe regarding the amount of capacity they have to store gas in preparation for winter and what percentage they have. Because the EU, you know, Gary, has ordered the member countries to get to the point of 80% of their capacity being full in preparation for the Russians just turning off the gas. And, there, you know, a lot of countries have made very significant progress. Their countries have gone from, they were down at 22%, and they're now up to 62%, 65%, and they're filling up as quickly as they possibly can. And in the middle of all of these various numbers, there's a blank for Ireland because we have no capacity 
to store gas. No, we did. As we've mentioned earlier, we, we, we the government was approached by a private company saying, listen, we'll go down to Shan, we'll set up a liquid a, a, a liquefaction plant. They're, they, they're, these, they're not permanent plants, Gary, are they? They're float, these kind of floating ports where ships can come in and they, they, they pump them and through this kind of floating platform and it brings them fr- back from the liquefied state where they're transported into the geisha state and then pumped uh, into the into the grid and the government said no thanks we no, we we won't do that and th- there was talk oh it takes so long well apparently you know it's not taking that long the germans have announced that they will have two of these floating platforms ready by the end of this year uh, they have uh, sourced five in total as part of their plan to get out from dependence on Russian gas. But we said, no, no, thank you. Thanks awfully. And I think that was because it was a risk that some of that gas might be nasty fracking gas, uh, which is bad gas, and we don't want that. And then, of course, we're offered the chance to maybe pump stuff into the old Kinsale gas fields, but they said, no, we won't do that. But what we could do is dismantle those fields further so that we can't do it again anytime in the future, because that's a sensible strategic decision to make. So we're making all the right decisions. You're talking politics, you know. You're aware that one of the big things that they're now planning, they're going to push through legislation, is to make it illegal for people to put in solid fuel or gas-fueled boilers into their house. Yeah? Uh, Yes, I I have heard that that is the next step, although I don't believe they've released the actual... Uh, draft legislation. The, this is this is the next step, and they're very enthusiastic about it. I'm just saying, I'm, leaving aside the light, the rights and the wrongs of this in the great green scheme of things, just the politics of it, Gary. We've pretty well been told that we can't guarantee as lads that we'll be able to keep the lights on. Okay, we won't. You know, everybody's going to have to cut back on their usage. We may have to ration. You know, there you, you may not be allowed to use certain kinds of electrical in, in, instruments in your house at peak times. There's all sorts of noises, scuttlebutt going around about how we're going. But the underlying message is we may have problems guaranteeing everybody electricity supply. But in order to deal with the problems that you may have heating your house electricity, what we're going to make sure is you can't imp- uh, install a backup system using solid fuel or oil. If you, We want you to be cold we're going to make sure you're going to be cold. None of that nonsense about putting up backups. But, you know, what actually strikes me is that that is actually a consistent and coherent policy because they closed down the turf plants. They're looking to close down the the coal if they can. Uh, they probably won't be able to do that now, right now, because that would just be a complete disaster. They have said no to gas because it's nasty fracking gas. So at a, at a macro level, they've said, no, we're not going. We're going to close those systems systems down, even if we have no alternatives in place. And at a micro level, they're going to make sure that people in their houses are in exactly the same position. I'm not sure that's the best idea politically. When people are worried about keeping the lights on and keeping the house warm, to say to them, "Yeah, you know the idea you had about putting in a boiler because you have a few trees you're going to chop up and keep the heat." No, no, we're not going to let you do that. We're going to make that criminal. I see we've had Leo out recently saying that caps on energy prices cannot be ruled out, I think was the phrase, that he would support a windfall tax on profits by energy companies as well. That's something I've kind of noted in this uh, debate about energy prices. On one hand, there's a general 
it's not our fault, it's the fault of the Ukrainian war, none of our policies went into what's happening now. And I think because that's the position that's been taken, that other things are to be blamed for this, rather than this being obviously something influenced by events, but also largely the very foreseeable consequences of over a decade of a very particular policy direction. There hasn't really been any sort of explanation of how we're going to stop this happening again or happening continuously. And windfall taxes and price caps, not sustainable. My sense is from reading about it, and God knows not an expert, probably not necessarily that effective, even in the medium term. I'm not sure that they will actually succeed greatly in doing anything they want to do, except a few negative consequences down the line. But they're seen to be doing something. That's the important thing. And they can blame those big, horrible companies as well. And we all like that. Yeah, I mean, this thing about the windfall taxes and, oh, energy companies are making record profits. Yes, they are making large profits. But when you look at the actual margin of the electrical companies as part of the overall costs that are being paid by consumers... The margin on energy transactions is terrible. Like, it's, it's, it's awful. They're making a couple of percent. So, yes, you bring in the windfall tax. It looks like you're doing things. But consumers aren't going to receive any noticeable reduction in what they're actually paying. Yeah. So, what is the purpose of it? I mean, obviously, it raises money from the government. But it also takes money away from energy companies who, if prices increase, still need some way to purchase on the wholesale market. Future the futures on gas at the moment are eight times higher than they were this time last year. But Gary, when the price of say uh, a gallon of diesel or, or a liter of petrol goes up, isn't the government take a set percentage? And therefore, uh, is, aren't they the ones that are actually doing almost the best of all out of this? Well, I mean, you know, if you buy petrol or diesel, I believe I don't have the figures in front of me, but I believe in both cases you're paying more than. of that total cost is going to the government in one tax or another. And then we have all of the taxes in relation to various types of energy and electricity, which they say they can't touch because the EU will not let them. It's the, the the real problem of the, the price increases is not it's nothing to do with the government. It's not the government. It's those horrible gas and oil companies. Even though with duty and fat, the single by a distance biggest chunk of what you're paying when you buy your oil for your heating or your diesel for your car is actually going into the state. Here's another interesting little point. So we have the independent talking about this cabinet memo that went out and It notes something that's particularly interesting um, about the memo, particularly given that Leo has come out about these windfall taxes. It says, The memo has outlined energy companies' growing concerns about their liquidity positions. This is because they are being forced to make huge collateral payments to gas suppliers before the fuel is delivered. So the question there, Michael, would be, if you knew that and you knew that there are liquidity concerns about energy companies in the state, is the appropriate thing there to put on a high one-off tax on them in order to reduce their liquidity further? Well, if you phrase the question in that, frankly, smart arse kind of way, Gary, you'd have to suspect that the answer is going to be no. But I imagine that's not how the government would phrase the question. Maybe they don't know there is such a question to ask. I don't know. No, I mean, whatever the suggestions from our own government... I don't know if you've been listening to the suggestions coming from the EU, and 
It's been very interesting to read things like Politico, which are very, Politico's European um, version is very well linked in to the EU and the uh, institutions there. And they take a generally pretty soft line on most things. But they've been reporting that the internal reaction to some of the EU's plans to deal with the energy crisis has not been positive even within the EU. Things like, you know, you had the EU talking about uh, agreeing price caps on Russian gas prices. I just, how do you think no, that's going to work? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I genuinely I just don't know how it's supposed to work. Uh, you have 10 countries, apparently, within the EU now, which are strongly supportive of the idea of introducing caps. We know that Hungary is, at this point anyway, absolutely opposed to accepting any cap. The Russians have said that they will not supply gas to any country that accepts a cap. Then you have the countries in the middle that don't really know. They're not sure. Maybe we'll have a cap, won't have a cap. But a lot of this feels like activity for the sake of activity. We have to be seen to do something because God knows we're going to be murdered because I'm not saying for a minute that obviously the Ukrainian war and the sanctions, and I'm not saying sanctions were wrong, haven't had a significant impact. But I think that if we go up, when we're, say, three or four years down the line, and we can look back at this and analyze it more carefully, that we'll see that this was the trigger. But this just happened to be the trigger. Really, what we're, we're experiencing now is kind of an inevitable consequence not of 10, but maybe even 20 years of economic energy management policy within the EU. And what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, actually, we've we fucked up energy planning completely for the last 20 years, and it's completely our fault. Are you going to say, I know it was because the Russians invaded Ukraine, and, you know, we were just behaving in a perfectly normal, rational way. The Germans, what are the Germans going to say? Do you, there, I mean, there's a piece of film going around which is, Sadly, genuine. You, you're probably aware of it, Gary. You know, a, a speech where I'm not sure if it's an OECD conference or a G7 or whatever it is, where Trump talks about the the European, but particularly the German dependency on Russian uh, gas. And there's a clip where they show the faces of the German delegation sniggering at the ridiculousness of his proposal. But whatever about that particular moment. Trump did say so. It's not we can't say that nobody said that this was not necessarily a great idea. They knew, it. but again, what are they going to do? Oh Jesus, we were wrong, and Donald Trump was right. That's not a universe anybody's willing to live in. So we have to run around and come up with lots of plans, and the kinds of plans that really will will resonate fairly well with voters. And we we know from here. I'm, I'm sure there are people listening to us who won't like this, but because they'll want to. You know, say, oh, of course it makes sense, you know, to slap on windfall taxes and high taxes. And these people are exploiters and they're, it's a wartime economy and they're, they're, they're doing something deeply wrong and immoral and all that. But back when the, the economy collapsed here in 2007-8, oh, it was developers and it was banks. And I was like, well, you know, rather than look for fundamental underlying causes, the fact that we were heading towards a crash in Ireland inevitably when you had a country which was and which had an economy which was growing strongly for getting on for a decade and a half, but at rates way above the countries for whom the interest rates were being set. And then when we transitioned to the euro seven years previously, we lost the ability to handle our interest rates. So we got it. We got a massive credit bubble and a credit bubble led to an asset bubble. And that led to boom, boom. 
But we've never recognized that because what? How, how can we deal with that? Because what that says is maybe we shouldn't be in the euro. And that's not, again, a universe that anybody in Ireland, bar a handful of people, are willing to consider. So you have to go around and invent other other people to blame. And if you're going to blame them, they have to come up with plans. And because they're not the real culprits, the plans aren't going to solve anything. Probably will do more harm than good, but at least you look like you're doing something. And that's the important thing. I suppose, actually, we should briefly mention, because we've been discussing this as if it's obvious why it's a bad idea, The these idea of price caps on Russian gas, which is what Vondelier wanted, or on gas supplies yeah. generally, which I think is what some of the EU countries are pushing for because they feel it's less antagonistic, although it's still clearly very targeted. Um, the problem with uh, price caps, and they're widely used all over the place, is that they distort supply and demand. The usual outcome, all other things being equal, is that supply ends up being rationed. Because prices in, in uh, a functioning market, price is in many cases a way of rationing the supply of something to those who are most invested in the procurement of it. So if you remove that, then oftentimes you just end up being unable to supply the market and you end up with lottery systems or there's tons of different ways it, it, it's it's done in controlled economies. But it's one of the reasons why controlled economies have such a history of shortages and blackouts and things like that, because it basically negates a large amount of what are called price signals. It leads to gross inefficiencies. Ultimately, it would lead to gross inefficiencies within the economy because those people who are most motivated to get it will end up having the same allocation of resources very often as people for whom it is actually a low priority and will... And if it was, if you're using price signals to ration it, would simply not use the resource. So you get gross inefficiencies within the system. It's also usually a, an easy way to cause massive levels of corruption and black market allocation. Because you know, if there are caps and there are then shortages, well, someone needs to decide how that's done. That's the old Soviet speciality, which is kind of amusing in this particular instance. If you look at the French example, the French example has been quoted with a... A lot of approbation, but from what I, from what I could, could make out of it, they've already had two fairly significant interventions with uh, energy prices in France and electricity generation. Now, I remember the, the French uh, are less exposed to this than most people because they have such a large proportion of their energy produced by nuclear power. But they've had very significant interventions from the state in limiting uh, price increases. And one of the things interesting, consequently, is that France more than... I'm not sure I'm right to say this, but certainly from the countries that I looked at, France, the French usage in electricity had basically stagnated. And it was at the same level as it would have been uh, in previous years. When if you looked at other countries, like, say, for example, Germany, you had seen you saw significant declines in energy consumption. And for good and for ill, we, we need to generate some kind of energy declines when you have a constricted supply. We you you want to be able you want to maximize the efficiency of the use, and one and you you're going to hopefully see significant declines of of shall we say incidental uses of the resource or less vital uses of the resource. But if you remove the price signals from it, which motivate people to change behavior, then you don't change the behavior. But of course, this is an incredibly political, uh, politically sensitive area because it's energy. To be fair, to make a point against me. I would point out that unusual, well, in this particular case, 
this is kind of a non-fungible good in the sense that if you're looking at a good where you could supply, where you could sell anywhere, but your principal reason you're selling it into one market is because of the price you can achieve in that market, then that has that it's a slightly different situation here. The the market that the Russians can sell this product into basically is Europe. In a, in that sense, it's not exactly fungible. In the sense they, they can't just say we're we're going to transfer this, and which people have been saying, oh, well, they'll just sell it elsewhere. They can't. They can't sell it to India or to China because it's piped. They don't have large scale capacities to liquefy it and then put it on boats and send it around the world. And also the location of the gas fields mean that the proximity to the European markets makes it much easier for them to pipe it here. They have one small pipe which is going south and east. So it's slightly different situation than it would be. It's a, it's a, it's a different situation than maybe if they were selling apples or oranges. Just as a thing there, I don't know. Have you seen any of the, the figures there on Russian oil? Uh, the percentage of Russian oil that has been transported around the world on Greek ships, and this is not directly to anything, but I thought it was just curious, considering all of the sanctions that we have in place, I think the, ma- the majority, now, you, like you, as you know very well, the act, trying to, to track down the ownership of a ship sometimes can be a long and complicated affair, you know, with flags of convenience and shell companies and all that kind of thing. But uh, one of the more reputable uh, business uh, outlets decided to have a look at this, and they worked out that I think it was 50% or more of the Russian oil that is being sold around the world, particularly obviously to the Far East, is being put onto Greek ships. And I just thought that, you know, if we wanted to just have a bit go all the way, that that might be worth looking at. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really familiar with the figures, but just, Greece and Russia have long had a fairly positive history. Well, at least more positive than many of the other European countries. So I'm not really surprised that they would be involved in that. And I've been particularly given the the Greek involvement in shipping more generally. I think the problem here, Michael, is we've been talking about this for years at this point. And as you go through it, there are different policy choices that can be be done um, to improve your odds to make this less likely to happen, to increase stability in the market and supply. The problem is, now that you've started to see things actually break down and and tilt, and it'll be very interesting to see as the Ukrainian situation simmers down, as as we move uh, in whatever direction with Russia, whether or not these markets start to stabilise, or if this is going to be the new normal for the next while, there are policies that can be put in place before an issue happens. But now that the issue is happening, a lot of those are, are not sufficient anymore because they take time to set up. And now you're starting to see, like as we're saying, windfall taxes, price caps, uh, don't use appliances at peak times. Things that are, as policies, not great. Although actually on the last one, you can get quite solid results if you can set up a centralized system which can actually uh, get people to do that. Uh, I think California has had some great work with that. But in general, it's it's just not a great system because it requires constant public buy-in. I'm not sure there are any easy, good policies to stop this once it starts happening. So, I mean, the policies the EU and the government are looking at are not good. They're not the policies that you would want to implement. 
But, you know, much like the joke of, you know, how do you get to Tipperary if I was, well, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. I'm not sure what they can do to get out of this in any sort of shape that is reasonably plausible in a democratic society. The question now is a political one, it seems to me, rather than a policy one. I think it's now clear that if you pursue the policy, the energy policy that Europe as uh, an entity has been pursuing, then no, we, we are stuck with where we are. The question now returns to the voters of Europe. Do they want to live with those policies and then live with a fairly a, a, a permanent or semi-permanent manifestation of the kind of things we're talking about now? Or do they want to change the policies? And that'll be the question. I, mean, I think that we can, we, can, we can rectify this situation pretty quickly if we return to a more sane politics about the energy, the way we organise our energy production and consumption. But that's a political question. And that's a question that we'll see over the next few general elections. It'll be interesting. Is Sweden, is, is that election on today, tomorrow? We'll see what happens there. It'll be interesting. I think it'll be interesting. The right party is predicted to come in second there, but that's not, I don't think, Croatia is particularly connected to energy. If, as regards to policy, if we pursue, if we keep on the the line we are going, well, then no. I think you're right. We're stuck with the situation we're in, and there is no particular way out, not in the short to medium term. But we could get out if we just changed our, from my perspective, made our policies more sensible and more realistic. That doesn't mean abandoning a transition to uh, renewable energy, but it actually means tilting towards an actual transition, which is not actually what we've been doing. We have been simply changing. We haven't been transitioning. We've been switching. And the problem is in the, inter- in, the, in the intervening period until we've achieved the capacity to do what we need to do with one kind of energy, a switch will lead to where we are now. And this is a point you've made before about the difference between what we're doing and what actually a real transition is. No, I mean, this is clearly going to continue developing. And for all it looks, you know, it looks terribly bad now, Michael. It looks like this is the predictable end point of a lot of these policies. But it's very difficult to predict how these things will turn out. I mean, energy prices, particularly over the last 15 years, have sometimes made spectacularly unexpected moves. So, I mean, maybe we'll just get lucky, Michael. Frack, Gary. Frack. I mean, that's that's one of the options there that... You know, the EU start dealing more with energy from the US. The problem there, of course, Michael, is that that would be absolutely no good to Ireland because we have, well, no, sorry, we haven't banned building facilities to deal with liquid natural gas. We've simply said that we will be conducting a review of them at some unknown point and it would be premature to build them before then. No, you misunderstand me, Gary. I mean, frack here. Frack Leitrim. Swear ahead. Get it out there. Get it out. I'd I'd love to see a politician run on a slogan which is just Frack Leitrim. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if he might do terribly well in Leitrim, but I think he might do well in Kerry. Frack Leitrim so you can afford to turn on your heating? Yeah. Frack Leitrim and heat up granny. Um, 
I had hoped to talk about the the Enoch uh, Burke case. Every time someone says Enoch Burke to me, when they start to talk, I keep waiting for them to say Enoch Powell. Very, very different feelings. But I think we will keep that for next week because it is it is painful for me to uh, stay in one position. So I think I, there was one thing I just wanted to mention very quickly, uh, which of course means I will talk about it for at least 15 to 20 minutes. This was an article in the journal. It was by a woman called Eva Gallagher, who is an analyst with a group called the ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a a think tank. Uh, They say they specialise in counter-extremism. She's got a book coming out. I think this is part of basically the publicity tour. But it's titled Trans Rights Issues Are Being Used as a Right-Wing Recruitment Tool. And I just wanted to mention it because... There are certain articles you read where you come away with the sense that the author has not said anything that is factually false or factually false to such an extent that you couldn't, you know, clarify it and make it, you know, make it seem reasonable. But where it's very clear that there is a particular viewpoint here and that everything is being shaped to further that viewpoint more than give you an overview of the area. I just thought this article is very much of that type. It's kind of all over the place as well. It starts with talking about extremism and then it starts going into the into the issue of transgenderism and then it starts there are some bizarre bizarre lines in it. Like for instance, they are talking about um groups that are like LGB alliance kind of groups like and then they they say this As my colleague Dr. Tim Squirrel has pointed out, the panic over queer identities is explicitly tied to a belief among white identity groups such as neo-Nazis that people can be manipulated into becoming gay or trans. So there's this very sort of interesting jump from people who disagree with me, neo-Nazis. But also, Gary, do you notice hooking up gay and trans? Because what you're, I think what we're doing there is this idea of saying this, which has a long and honourable, disreputable history of saying that somehow you you can, predatory gays can lure impressionable young people in and turn them, yeah? And I don't think there's any evidence that that particular notion is possible. But, it, but then on the other hand, then and trans, the idea that you can lure, you can change... But say somebody comes along and they're saying that there there may be an element of social contagion in people with uh, reporting gender dysphoria, or and also the people who have noticed that you you see this happening in if you look at geographic areas where you have certain some schools not reporting at all, but then in certain but then unusually high levels of reporting within friendship groups, which makes it look uh, for some people very much like people are being influenced into developing a belief that they have gender dysphoria and are therefore trans. So there's a there's a, a yoking together of two groups under one banner in order to associate one, what I regard as perfectly reasonable scientific line of inquiry, to a discredited historical idea. I, I think it's also worth mentioning here that the ISD has turned up in relation to these sort of things before. They give a um, they give a training session for the houses of the Oroctus, uh, I think in 
April of this year. And Aoife Gallagher was speaking at it. And I did an article on it titled Anti-Misinformation Tink Tank Spreads Trans Misinformation because of something Aoife Gallagher had said about um, detransitioners, which was absolutely false. And she had said, um, I think she claimed that there was no scientific data that disagreed with her. And she was just way off. And that kind of leads into the thing about groups like the ISD and particular members of them. They are given privileged positions to talk about things that they are absolutely not experts in. So for instance, I'll give you a a line here, Michael. So they're talking about, um, (laughs) she's talking about how throughout history, people have have been brought up in a world that loves to fit people neatly into two boxes, one labeled male and the other female. And she says this, as much as certain people will maintain that diverging from these norms contradicts biology, that is only true if you believe that science is set in stone, which it is not. And then she talks about how science is changing and a growing body of research has provided evidence bases to dispel our fixed ideas about sex and gender. But then she says this, approximately 1.7% of the world's population are born intersex. Now, there are particular researchers who give that fear. So it's not undefendable. But what is not mentioned here is that that is a very particular idea of what it means to be born intersex. And it is not one that all clinicians agree with. If you take a stricter definition of what it means to be born intersex, using only conditions which would be nearly universally recognized as constituting being born intersex, you will get a figure that tends to be maybe a hundredth of what's being put forward here. But that's not discussed. That's not mentioned. Instead, it's just approximately 1.7% of the world's population are born intersex, almost equal to the number of people with red hair. So it's not wrong. It's not factually incorrect. It just doesn't give you information. Very close to it, though. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's a sort of, by a very strict definition, that's correct. And you don't need to mention that to people because what are they going to say? They can't say you lied because you didn't. You just gave a, you know, you picked a very particular definition. Yeah. It's also, by the way, just a horribly messy article that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And as it's the journal comments are, of course, turned off. But I will I will link it um, to people so that they can have a look at it. Uh, but there's, there's just some weird claims in it. Stuff about... Uh, half of transgender or non-binary youth contemplating suicide in the last year with 20% attempting to do so, but it doesn't actually reference which research it comes from, nor is it reference the 1.7% claim, but I, you know. Yeah, well, this- then it makes some interesting, th- here's actually one. It says a number of studies have looked at the brain structure and activity of transgender people and found that they appear to be more in line with the gender they identify with than their biological sex. Now, that is... There are some interesting stories on this, Michael, on brain differences. In general, and this is a very complicated area, and there's a massive amount of internal disagreement about whether or not there's actually any difference here at all. Yes. But in general, the research I have said suggests that there is a difference in some of the male and female brains examined. Not spectacular differences, but slight differences in some of the structure. But that that is not related to gender identity, it's related to sexuality, in that there are 
slight differences in the brain of straight and gay people. Yes. And even that is hotly contested. The idea that that is um, related to transgenderism, they she links a particular study from 1995. I don't think that's strongly supported. I don't think that's really held to be the case, although it comes up occasionally. Okay, Gary, but like, I'll give you this. Put it this way. Say for say you you say you said that we looked at uh, the those studies which suggest that there is uh, a, a small difference in certain parts, particular parts of the brain between one kind of brain and another kind of brain. And say you say that uh, well, we're not we're at this demonstrates a transgender, or you could say well some studies say that if you look at uh, children and teenagers who, who report dysphoria that somewhere up to 90% will say at the top end of the studies. 90% of those by the age of 21 will have resolved those dysphoric issues and will the, the large majority of those will now say that they are either gay men or gay women, right? So it very much depends on which, 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 which uh, what question you ask is. Well, are, are, you tran- are you trans? Yes. Or are you actually, are you actually simply gay? As, you know, it's, but, and even those studies, even the studies regarding whether you can tell the difference between a, a so-called straight brain and a gay brain are, are far from resolved. Gary, listen, I think the people should, would, should read the thing. It seems to me virtually every paragraph contains a rhetorical flourish, which is problematic, potentially could be viewed as problematic. Uh, connections and non sequiturs and logic jumps all over the gaff. I mean, defenders of the rights of women, that's when you says that the, the far right starts this radical right-wing campaign to, to denigrate the trans community, blah, blah, blah. From there, it joins forces of the evangelical right. Uh, and they frame it as a, 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 a fight for trans civil rights as a threat to women, children, and gay and lesbian and bisexual people. So basically saying, you know, all, you know all those lesbian feminists that you know, Gary, that are actually... Uh, have concerns about the, the direction that the, the transgender issue is taking. Actually, they are either evangelical Christians in America, or they are far right wing, or else they're actually the cat. They, they are the unwitting cat's paws of these groups. So Helen Joyce, for example, who is straight and a feminist, but the editor of the, the Economist and has written wrote a book. Helen Joyce is actually an unwitting cat's paw of these groups. Is that what this article is saying? Hitler, Hitler was a vegetarian. Does that mean that vegetarianism is somehow painted because bad pe- some bad people were vegetarians, therefore vegetarians must be somehow part of the nat- and some kind of vast Nazi conspiracy? I think that one might be true, actually. <laughs> I have Some of my best friends are vegetarian. Just on the on the brain thing, because this, this comes up kind of constantly. Yeah. Um, and there's tons of stuff saying what this article says. And it's been a while since I looked at this. I mean, I looked at this when I was in university, so a number of years ago. But I remember that some of the earliest studies that were done in this, they found that there were differences in certain areas of the brain of transsexuals. But these earliest cases, what they did was they used post-mortem um, actual yes brains but everyone that they had done everyone that they examined had used cross-sex hormones 
And interestingly enough, Michael, and you can probably guess this, hormones can cause structural changes in the brain. You, yeah, that's that's a weird one, isn't it? Because if I listen to some people, you get the you get the feeling that hormones only affect everything south of the brain. And also, what I think is interesting is that in the cases I can remember where they saw a difference, the difference was there was a difference from the the natal sex, the the sex they were born at, but it didn't match the what you would expect in someone of the other sex either. Uh, and then there was, of course, the question of well, if these people have been on cross sex hormones. You know, what has that caused as well? Because that could explain why you get something that is slightly different from what you'd expect of their natal sex, but not similar to what you'd expect of a different sex. But my general take on this, and I know apologies to any neuroscientist listening, but I have generally been of the opinion for a long time that a lot of the stuff that comes out of the neuroscience field is basically just witchcraft anyway. <laughs> okay. I mean, I there has been a couple of interesting pieces that have looked at the field of neuroscience and it has a tendency to make rather spectacular claims on very kind of flimsy data. No, And I think any psychologist, certainly any psychiatrist will tell you if, when they're being honest and a lot of them that I've talked to have been very upfront about their understanding of the relationship between the brain and say chemicals and how you alter behaviors or moods or stuff using different kinds of chemicals the level to which they understand really what's going on yeah it's all a little bit of guesswork anyway i think we will draw a line under that on for this for today uh we'll let you get off to your bed with some morphine or some heroin or whatever it is you're taking to ease the pain and release our listeners back into the wild and we will be back well actually we'll be back now yes we will be back now be Next Sunday, I was going to say, we, Sunday after that, we'll be off to our uh, plan to take over the, the world with the Edinburgh Wine Club, which we're, 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 start, we're, we're resurrecting. We must remember to mention that next week before we forget. Oh, yes, yes. I suppose we should mention it here for those who have gotten through the entire episode as a little sort of uh, spoiler. Uh, the The wine club we had mentioned as a way to mock the uh, government's alcohol prices or their, their price controls uh, was not forgotten about and has in fact been worked upon. So we will be sending Michael over to Italy shortly to talk to some uh, uh, some international transporters, I suppose. And some wine and, people, uh, some people some, actually make the stuff. Some suppliers. And see if we can challenge the regressive taxation. Yes, and then we just need to pin down exactly how we can do this because... God knows we've got enough legal opinions at this point. That's the problem. Far too many opinions and not all of them are the same. Anyway, we will be back next Sunday. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Until then, mind yourselves and stay well. All the best. <laughs>